It's my pleasure today. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my pleasure to have my colleague and friend David Sanger here to talk about the WikiLeaks stories. Um, I was uh, actually at the home of a, of a mutual friend uh, the night before this story broke in the New York Times. And David was there as a, also as a guest. And I have to tell you, he was a little fidgety. <laughs> it had been a long two and a half months. <laughs> uh, because, of course, he knew that the publication of the stories based on the uh, massive data leaks uh, from the State Department that the WikiLeaks uh, op operation had placed at a, at a remove, anyway, in, in the hands of the New York Times is going to be a very significant story and a controversial one. Uh, David's theme for today is that journalism, in some respects, has changed in the last six months. Um, that is something that uh, is an interesting premise, and it's a one. It's a premise that there is no clear consensus yet on uh, among within journalism. But there's no question that what's happened in the last several months, especially regarding WikiLeaks, uh, is a profound. Uh, thing and what has been happening in the Middle East and the journalism dimension of that, the social media dimension of that, is also profound. We don't know exactly where it's going. Fortunately, David Sanger is here and will explain exactly where <laughs> it's going and uh, how it happened. David, very glad to have you. Well, great to be here, Alex, and thank you all um, for coming. It is great to see a, a crowded room here. You don't always get these. I've given these sometimes in the past, but we haven't had quite as big a crowd. I'm going to attribute it more to the subject matter than anything else, but also to see some great old friends <coughs> who were here, and also to see uh, a couple of students who were victims of IGA 201, which is uh, uh, the uh, course on national security and um, central challenges in national security in the press, which Graham Allison and I did last semester uh, over uh, in the uh, across across the courtyard, and um, so uh, it's great to have you all here. Um, I'll tell you how I thought I would do this. I want to I want to minimize the amount of time that you're listening to me blare on, and maximize the amount of time for uh, questions and answers and comments and thoughts. And how much time total do we have here? An hour. An hour, great. So I'm going to give you the, the greatly shortened version on WikiLeaks of what um, Alex and I and some others did uh, a month ago here when we had a session just on WikiLeaks uh, itself. And there's a longer transcript of that that will be published if it hasn't already been. Uh, for those of you who um, feel that uh, you uh, you need even more of this, but I think I will have cured you of that by the time <laughs> I'm done here. And then I want to talk just a little bit about how WikiLeaks may have fed into what we're seeing go on in the Mideast. I would hardly argue that WikiLeaks was the cause of the uprisings, but it may have been one of the triggering events for the timing. And on the question of whether or not journalism has actually changed much in the past six months. I wouldn't say that the art and the craft of journalism has changed, but I would say that the way we have to think about the story that we're covering certainly has changed. Um, and I think that WikiLeaks has had a little bit to do with that as well, because it has certainly affected the way we deal with sources, the way diplomats deal with uh, their um, host countries, <coughs> Um, and maybe, maybe about the way the Western press is read around the world. And in that respect, there may have been some deeper changes underway. Um, so, as I mentioned in a, this earlier <coughs> session, when Alex first asked me to come up to um, talk about WikiLeaks uh, a few months ago, he basically said, I want you to come up and explain why you guys decided to divulge state secrets, harm national security, <laughs> put people's lives at risk, all for the benefit of getting a few more stories on the front page of your dead tree edition. Uh, and then we'll spend the rest of the day just attacking the way you went about doing it. And that worked out so well the first time a month ago that we thought we'd go try it again. Um, 
so I thought I'd talk a little bit about how we went through the process journalistically and then in dealing with uh, the U.S. government on, on this issue, something we've gotten a fair bit of interesting criticism on. Um, we had known <coughs> that uh, the WikiLeaks organization had a trove of 250,000 State Department documents, but they weren't the first thing that was made available to us. The first thing that was made available to us were some documents on Iraq and then on Afghanistan, which were interesting and gave uh, a sort of ground view of the war, but I don't think in either case really changed the narrative of how the war went. Uh, come September, um, after Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, had determined that he really no longer cared for the New York Times because of the tone of a profile uh, that had been done of him by John Burns, our London bureau chief, a profile from which you might conclude that Mr. Assange was somewhat of an odd character, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. Um, he decided to turn over the State Department cables to The Guardian and to Der Spiegel. Uh, but not to the New York Times. Um, the Guardian then turned them over to the Times uh, on two theories. One, that when we went into this enterprise of publishing some of these cables and trying to figure out what should and shouldn't be published, we all went into it as a team, uh, talking to each other, and the Guardian thought that teamwork worked pretty well, so they didn't want to break that up. And secondly, because the Guardian knew that we had a better <coughs> chance of having um, some real <coughs> concrete conversations with the administration about what national security damage might be done by publication of specific cables. And uh, that that information was critical to them because I think all three newspapers went into this thinking that these cables would tell a very important story, but that we were not out to get individuals killed, we were not out to blow uh, ongoing operations that uh, it would not, we would not withhold any material simply because it was diplomatically embarrassing, but that we also did not want to publish things that were going to get dissenters <coughs> in China jailed or somebody who said something wrong in the Arab world to some U.S. embassy uh, shot on the way out of their house. Uh, and so um, we went at this with some <coughs> seriousness of purpose, and you may have read Bill Keller's account of this in the Times Magazine, which is also the introduction to an e-book that we published about a month ago, which compiles all of the WikiLeaks coverage into, into one uh, convenient place. Um, early on, we decided that Julian Assange was not a publishing partner he was going to be treated as a source. And sources come in all varieties, from the helpful to the extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I'll let you, from reading our accounts of this later on, conclude where Mr. Assange fell on that, on that uh, uh, run, but uh, you can imagine. Uh, and uh, we decided that along the way we had to go verify everything that we had seen from his material, because we knew that at least in the case of one set of videos from Iraq, they had actually been edited somewhat uh, significantly, and we wanted to make sure that we were seeing uh, a full picture uh, of all of this. So we decided early on that Mr. Assange would not be a party to the editorial um, process, and that The Guardian and Der Spiegel <coughs> and The Times would all go through this material themselves and then decide what was newsworthy, because we knew that for cultural differences, for differences of our readers, what we found newsworthy was going to be different from what they found newsworthy. You know, the Der Spiegel was utterly fascinated about the U.S. Embassy in Berlin's analysis of the inner workings of some German political machinations that we thought would probably have relatively limited interest <laughs> to our readership. Uh, I was utterly fascinated by the discussion between the American ambassador in Seoul, uh, who has not been eager to talk to the New York Times since, uh, and uh, some of her South Korean counterparts about what plans they had in place when North Korea collapsed and how they would buy off 
Chinese acquiescence to South Korea essentially taking control of a good deal of North Korea. I thought that was sort of more interesting than I think, say, my German counterparts <laughs> thought. Um, so you all come to this differently. And what the first thing that we did was we built a fairly extensive um, search engine that was custom built for this that not only enabled you to search these 250,000 documents <coughs> by subject matter, but also looked at their level of classification, where they were addressed to, so that things w that were more sensitive were more likely to pop up earlier in our queue. Even to this day, we have not mined all of what was in the database. At the time that we all met for dinner, I had not looked at a single cable about Tunisia because <coughs> I was too stupid to think that Tunisia would be strategically important in any particular way. Uh, after the uprising, you know, uh, and after some local pr Arab press had gone through material they had gotten separately, we went back and looked at Tunisia. We've gone back and looked at, you know, Libya, Saudi Arabia with different eyes since what has happened um, since. And um, so we went through this material and uh, we quickly came to the conclusion that uh, a good deal of it was basically junk. Believe it or not, every embassy around the world collects up news articles from the local press, summarizes them for the State Department, and on the way out the door as they press the button to send this cable, they stamp it secret. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I, I've tried this on a couple of diplomat friends, and they just shake their hand and say, Pat Moynihan was right. Pat Moynihan, of course, gave the, wrote a tremendous treatise on the question of why, when you overclassify everything, you're basically not protecting the things you really need to protect. <coughs> um, but there were some gems in there, and we had to decide first what we were going to write, and we spent several weeks <coughs> just sorting out the topic matter. So, you know, Pakistan's unwillingness to let U.S. inspectors come in and look at some U.S.-owned, highly enriched uranium that could be turned into a bomb seemed to be worth the lead of a story since administration officials never let a month go by without praising how wonderfully the Pakistanis are helping on the nuclear security questions. Uh, and since the American ambassador is writing cables back to Washington suggesting something to the contrary, we thought that was pretty interesting. We found lots, as you could imagine, on detention. We found lots on uh, uh, Gitmo and the debate over closing it, something that continues in the news to this day, uh, and so forth. Then we had to decide how we were going to deal with the U.S. government. <coughs> And the decision basically came down to this. First of all, we had to make clear to them that we were the ones making the decision about what would get published or not. And so we knew this would not go down well with them. We also knew it wouldn't be a surprise. We wanted to give them enough time to look at these cables and talk to us about what security risks they thought there were, and enough time for us <coughs> to make judgments about it, but not enough time that they would begin to think that they had timed a go to court, talk us out of this, talk us out of publishing it, and so forth. So we settled on giving them a week before publication, knowing that the first 36 hours of this would be spent in uh, the conversation that begins with, we don't talk about classified data, and ends with, uh, who gave you guys the rights to make all of these decisions? And that they were going to need a little time to work through those before we actually got to a serious conversation. And that's exactly what happened. They started with, we don't talk about anything classified. We said, no, no, you guys don't seem to understand. We have all 250,000 cables between the uh, State Department and your embassies and consulates. The only question here is whether or not you're going to help us in redacting them or you're not going to help us in redacting them. After about 36 hours, they came to the conclusion that it was probably in their better interest and the better interest of the national security of the United States that they do that. And we emailed to them somewhere between 100 and 150 cables that we were planning to write from. because we, we weren't interested in playing a guessing game where they went through all 250,000 cables and tried to figure out what was important. And after 
a fairly lengthy meeting at the State Department that had everyone from representatives of the intelligence agencies to uh, the Pentagon to um, the State Department and the White House uh, where they basically tried to make an argument that we shouldn't publish anything that had foreign names in it because uh, it <coughs> could be harmful to the security of the U.S. We actually got down to a real process where we said, okay, these eight cables are going into the first story. These ten cables are going into the second story. Let's sit down and talk about what should be redacted. We had already done a number of redactions. They came back with some things that we had missed, including in one case the name of an individual that we had completely read over who turns out to have been a major source in an adversarial country to, to the United States, was providing information for many years, and there was no question that if we published that name, that person would get strung up, and we obviously took that out. Those were the easy decisions. They also wanted to take out, however, things like uh, the king of Saudi Arabia saying in reference to Iran, you have to cut off the head of the snake. <laughs> or the king of Bahrain, who now has gone on to other problems in life, uh, saying, uh, you know, we don't, can't really take out the Iranians, but it would be a really good idea if you bombed their nuclear facilities sometime really soon. <laughs> uh, advice that both the Bush and the Obama administrations decided not to take. Um, I could write any number of times that Mideast leaders are concerned about the Iranian nuclear program, but none of it has the same impact of hearing the king of <laughs> Saudi Arabia talking about cutting off the head of the stake. I mean, it really has made it vivid. And it has had the effect of freeing up the Arab press, which before never really wrote about the Iranian nuclear program, because they weren't quite sure whether it was threat or not so bad, to actually write about it, because they suddenly discovered that the king of Saudi Arabia didn't think it was such a great idea, so they had cover to write on the subject. Um, we have heard some big critiques about how we went about doing this. The first one was we did harm for no reason. The second was that we didn't really learn anything from these documents that we didn't already know. That we put lives at risk by identifying people. And we also heard that we had sullied ourselves by dealing with Julian Assange and that we had no right to make these decisions. So I just wanted to run through those real fast. First, we did harm for no reason. Um, nothing new here. There is almost no time that you write about sensitive national security uh, subjects in which someone in some government doesn't make the argument that by merely publishing a debate on such and such a subject, whether it's the Iranian nuclear program or unrest in the Arab world or threats to the Saudi leadership or whatever, that you aren't in some way inciting further trouble. And the fact of the matter is you can't write about these subjects and really predict what the result's going to be. Um, there may have been some harm done by publishing some of this, but I thought it was sort of interesting that <coughs> very senior diplomats in uh, the U.S. government have told me since Tunisia that they think that Tunisians were sparked to into their rebellion in part by reading that American diplomats so knew and understood the depth of the corruption in their own country. The wife of President Ben Ali sitting by the pool uh, drinking champagne and eating caviar while people outside were living on two dollars a day. And boy, I thought everybody was supposed to turn off their cell phones, and of course I'm the one who forgot to do it. Um, that, um, that they came to the conclusion uh, fairly quickly that the Tunisians were in part inspired by the embarrassment of having read this. Now, will that turn out to have been a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, and I'm sure that sooner or later there would have been some other spark in Tunisia. But I do think that it's interesting that um, WikiLeaks may have contributed to <coughs> this democratic movement. Um, second argument, that we did more damage than we knew. Well, maybe so, but we noted that 
almost all the other newspapers that we were dealing with here, from Der Spiegel to The Guardian to WikiLeaks' own website, took most of the redactions that we had decided upon and also redacted that same material. And to this day, there are only a couple of thousand of the documents that are on the WikiLeaks site. You can't go on the WikiLeaks site and get all 250,000 documents. And they have gone through them and redacted some of them. Now, some of them they have not redacted, and some things that we decided in the end shouldn't be published, a couple have leaked out. But by and large, most of the redactions that we decided upon seem to have held. Um, thirdly, did we sully ourselves by dealing with the likes of Julian Assange? Well, as I suggested at the beginning, most sources for news stories are not easily compared to Mother Teresa. <laughs> and uh, this was certainly no exception here. You get accustomed to dealing with sources. We've had as sources some pretty unsavory characters. Not everybody who Alex interviewed when he was working at the Times, as I recall from those days when we were sitting next to each other, would he have necessarily enjoyed having dinner with. But that didn't mean that they didn't have important information to convey uh, along the way. Um, <coughs> the fourth argument, we don't have any right to make these decisions themselves, ourselves. This is a toughie because the argument in favor of the press doing this essentially comes down to that arrogant statement that um, you'll have to take this up with the founders, you know, that, <laughs> that, uh, that the way the First Amendment was first conceived, the words government shall make no law meant government shall make no law, and that in the end we have to make these editorial decisions. Um, I believe that in the long run the republic is much stronger for that. I also believe we can make mistakes <coughs> along the way. And that's why I think we did the responsible thing by consulting with the State Department and the intelligence agencies about the redactions, but retaining for ourselves the final decision about what gets published. Um, we can come back to all of these. Let me just say a couple of quick things about the uprising in the Middle East. Um, we moved from WikiLeaks, which was one kind of reporting challenge, one about organizing ourselves and dealing with a mass of data, to the spreading um, conflict in the Middle East, which is um, a sprawling story where none of it lends itself to the organization that search engines can bring about. And that can only be done well by having a very large, very experienced group of reporters on the ground. And I think the past two or three months have illustrated more dramatically than ever the damage that has been done in American journalism by the fact that so few news organizations um, have invested in foreign news uh, anywhere near as much as they used to and certainly near as much as they said they would after 9-11. You'll remember that post 9-11, after a summer in which uh, we had been treated to shark attacks and uh, uh, other such stories, 9-11 happened and you heard all the network chiefs say at various points, we're now going to commit ourselves anew to covering a world that is can reach into our shores and understand why so many around the world hate us and understand the dynamics. And what we have now seen since is less commitment to coverage of that nature 10 years later than we had prior to 9-11. Um, I think the Times did pretty well. We put a lot of people out in the field who had a lot of experience in these countries and yet every day when I sit in news meetings, you know, we know what it is that we're not covering as well. And yet I think to ourselves, we're probably better positioned than most news organizations on earth these days uh, to be doing this. And I have to say that much of what I have seen on television, I think has been disappointing because it has been very difficult to parachute reporters into these places and have them arrive in any significant sourced way. You can describe what's going on on the street, but getting the deeper sources that explain the dynamics of a society is very hard. 
Um, I don't say that with any particular pride um, uh, about the industry in which uh, many of us here uh, work. I'm very thankful that I work for one of the few places that has continued to invest in this. But I actually think that for much of the country, and you know, only a fraction, small fraction of the country reads the New York Times, I think that Americans have been somewhat at a disadvantage from the fact that they have not had the kind of broad-based <coughs> reporting on this that I think I would have seen 20 years ago. And I think this has been a case where a story that's very expensive to cover, very expensive to invest in having correspondents living in these places for years or traveling in them for years before events like this happen. Um, I think we've begun to see the effects on the reporting generally, and I see it in a number of different newspapers. There are some places where we've seen fabulous uh, expansion of reporting. I think Reuters has done some great work uh, with their wires. Um, Bloomberg as well. I think the Wall Street Journal in its new form has sort of covered this issue with a breadth that I'm not sure you would have seen uh, a few years ago. Uh, but in general, uh, most Americans are getting sort of headlines and not as much depth as I would uh, hope that readers of the New York Times are getting uh, or that people in many other countries are getting. So I will leave it at that and look forward to our conversation. Let me, <coughs> let me ask the first question, if I may. Um, David, when you look at the coverage uh, of this Middle East crisis uh, from the perspective of judging the, the news organizations that are doing the job. What about the AP? What about CNN, uh, Fox, uh, the networks, the LA Times, the Washington Post, the, the institutions that I think, aside from the Times, uh, were the ones, American ones anyway, that would have been expected to be the, the engines of this kind of coverage? You know, I, I confess, Alex, that uh, I've been busy enough between, you know, our own coverage and don't get home early enough to watch a whole lot of the TV stuff. When I have tuned into, um, I think CNN's had a couple of individually excellent reporters on the ground, but the sewing together of this material, which is not something that television tends to necessarily lend itself to anyway, um, I don't think has been as as great. Uh, I think there have been some cases, I think Anderson Cooper's done a really good job uh, with that. Um, <coughs> what I've seen of Fox has not been an incredible amount of either reporting on the ground or deep, you know, analysis uh, elsewhere. And I'm not looking for New York Times-style analysis on TV because I understand the time constraints. But I think to many Americans, this may look more and more like a sort of chaos in different places where the connective tissue isn't explored um, as deeply. Um, the LA Times, uh, I have not seen as much only because they stopped a few years publishing their Washington edition and I just don't, you know, I see individual stories but I don't have a, an overall sense. But I do know how much they've cut back their foreign staff and same thing uh, for the Washington Post, which I think is down to 14 or 15 foreign correspondents and no domestic bureaus, I think, at this point. Um, so uh, I've seen some individually great reporting in, in the Post, and uh, <coughs> uh, they've had, they hired away from Washington bureaus their foreign editor, uh, Doug Gell, who's got a lot of experience in this uh, territory, and I think is. Uh, I think they've done some very nice analytical pieces and some very good on-the-ground reporting, but I don't think they've been able to throw as many bodies at it as we have. And what about the AP and especially Al Jazeera English? Al Jazeera has been impressive. Mm -hmm. um, I have to say that I find myself tuning in to their, uh, their web uh, broadcast a couple of times a day. and getting a sense of what's happening on the ground that I don't often get from American TV. I think this has been a good moment for them, and I think they've built up a lot of credibility. Uh, AP, um, I think, has done a pretty solid job, but I think Reuters has had the edge. Questions, Diane? Um, 
This is sort of an academic setting, so I can ask a sort of historical question. Um, I want to remind everybody about 1989. So what's so different now in the Middle East as opposed to what happened when the Berlin Wall fell and then every other country in Eastern Europe suddenly um, got liberated? We didn't have all the technology and all the social media, and yet it still happened and people were surprised. So how do you see the two? Like, do you look at one lens? Well, you know, the question I keep asking people in our newsroom is, is this 1989 or is this 1848? You know, in other words, are you going to see many of these uh, uh, revolutions sort of cut off, or are you going to see a real reformation of, of the area? And it's very possible that in countries that for years have had military dictatorships, we could end up at the end of this process with newly formed military dictatorships. Um, we don't know how Egypt's going to turn out. Uh, you know, I remind people that in the first year of the Iranian Revolution, we actually thought some pretty reasonable people might end up running Iran. Because the revolution, while sparked by Islamists and obviously the, the return of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, quickly the rest of that coalition got marginalized and in some cases jailed or killed off. And we ended up a year later with what we've been dealing with for the past 30 years. And so it's a little bit too early to tell which way this is going to happen. Um, Social media certainly had a fair bit to do with this one that did not in 1989. Um, but I think Tom Friedman makes a good point when he says, you know, important as Facebook might have been, Google Earth might be equally important. You know, as people look and they see how much land is, you know, in their country that they can't go into, or how many swimming pools are behind those high walls in the wealthy parts of town. Um, my favorite Google Earth story of the past few months have been the Greek tax collectors <laughs> who have seen these little blue rectangles uh, you know, behind thousands of houses in Greece and you get taxed on your pool. But when they looked to see how many people reported having pools in all of downtown Athens, it was about 20 people. So they started going house to house and uh, they've been very comprehensive, but they've collected almost no additional taxes, which mm -hmm. tells you something. Um, <laughs> but I think there's sort of an element of that going on here now, that I think these technologies enable people to understand much better how other people are living and ask the question, why are we living like this? Um, when President Obama ordered up some studies of democratic transitions, you know, the three happy cases that came up in the White House uh, uh, studies of this are three I know well just from my time as a foreign correspondent in Asia and having uh, covered some element of these. It was um, Marcos's departure from uh, the Philippines. The Philippines is today a messy democracy, but it is certainly not any place close to the kind of dictatorship it was. Indonesia a place near and dear to the president's heart. Uh, when he was growing up there as a young boy, it was run by basically a military dictatorship under first Sukarno and then Suharto. Today, it's a real working democracy and a relatively fast-growing, developing country. And the greatest example of all, and perhaps the biggest reason for hope, is South Korea, where I just was a week and a half ago. Uh, I got to Asia just as the military dictatorship was ending in South Korea. The first elected president was a general who seemed a lot like the previous military dictators. The succeeding four had been civilians, including uh, one or two prominent dissidents, uh, one of whom was nearly killed by one of the military regimes uh, in his uh, earlier life. So those are the happy cases that are out there. Iran, as I suggested, would be the unhappy model. And so we just don't know if this is 1989. It's part of what makes it such an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, following up on what you said about Tunisia, 
There was a WikiLeaks dump, particularly one cable, I think it was from the ambassador, he went out to a party with the Cavelsi family related to Ben Ali, and it was completely over the top, there was a tiger in the cage at the party. <laughs> now, when did this happen in relation to the self-immolation of this young man, Boisezi? Was it before or after? Did, and how did it contribute to this uprising? They, um, we did not, in our initial load of stories, publish anything on Tunisia. Uh, in retrospect, which we had. Um, but uh, once the number of the documents were out there, WikiLeaks spread some of these country-specific batches to the Arab press and to others. There's some that are going to be out uh, about some Asian countries in, in the next couple of days. Um, and it got published in the Arab press, and it was just prior, maybe by a <coughs> month, to the self-immolation of the of the uh, okay now did he read them you know the, the guy who the, the vendor the food vendor who was stopped by the police did it contribute to the fact that he lit himself on fire I have no idea but we do know that they were pretty broad they were pretty widely broadcast within Tunisia and uh, there weren't many internet restrictions in Tunisia until the crisis hit and as a result um, I think people got a little bit more of a sense. It wasn't a secret to them that Ben Ali was a pretty corrupt guy. But, you know, tigers in a cage <laughs> have a way of spreading by word of mouth. <laughs> Could I follow up on that Tunisian point? Uh, last week, a young Tunisian banker was here, the Harvard <coughs> alum, and he talked about WikiLeaks in quite a different way mm -hmm. and saw them as extremely helpful because what they had done was until that point there was a monolithic view that all Americans backed these dreadful dictators. He said when the WikiLeaks were published, then they were able to see, hey, these guys don't like them either. Therefore, the Americans aren't bad guys and we can count on them to be with us in getting rid of some of these people. And one of the reasons I was eager to hear you on this is he's, he's only 39 years old, but he started a foundation already to try to work on how to develop a civil society there, so we should be following up on that. But again, it was a very different take on how WikiLeaks worked. And it was at least, I was there, and it was at least that America would not stop it from happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what what he's picking up on, and it's a very good point, is the difference between what Tunisians heard before, which was the public support for President Ben Ali because they liked having uh, an ally and, you know, <coughs> sort of overlook the dictatorship, and then, you know, the family um, chatter that you got from WikiLeaks, which was, you know, despite our public support for him, and that support hadn't wavered until he was right on the edge. He's a, you know, a corrupt guy and his wife is worse, okay? And so, you know, you would read the same about Mubarak, and we actually did go through those and publish some of those prior to uh, the Cairo uprising, uh, and others, and that's not a huge surprise, but I think to the Tunisians who read it, it at least indicated, and I, I hope I made this clear in my earlier presentation, that we, too, understood what the nature of the regime was. Now, to your interesting question, does that mean the U.S. would um, step out of the way if they tried to um, unseat him? In Tunisia, yes. In Egypt, eventually. You'll remember the first things said about Egypt were uh, on the first day of the uprising, Hillary Clinton saying uh, that Mubarak had a stable regime and he was interested in reform. Both of those things turned out not to be true a week later. Um, <laughs> you'll remember that Joe Biden would not call him a dictator. Right. A week later, people were happily, you know, reach, running for microphones to call him a dictator. <laughs> um, if this hit Saudi Arabia, it would be really interesting because we understand pretty well what the nature of that regime is, but I suspect you would not see President Obama race to pull the rug out from underneath them. Bahrain's an interesting case where the U.S. essentially has stuck with a monarch who has used pretty repressive techniques, in part because we've got the Fifth Fleet still sitting there. Yes, sir. 
Um, uh, another WikiLeaks question. Um, and it's kind of hypothetical, so excuse me. Um, but what would have happened had you been the recipient of the disk from the original WikiLeaks source? I'm curious to drill down into what makes WikiLeaks different and whether the New York Times could. You mean is if, if the, if the, the let's assume the soldier yeah. who took it had sent it straight to the New York Times? Precisely, rather than a non state. It's a really interesting question. Um, and one that we took up a month ago inconclusively. Um, we asked this internally. Okay, so what difference does it make that this went from whoever initially downloaded it, and I read the same things you read about Bradley Manning, but I've got no idea if he was guilty, innocent, had any role in it. Um, if it hadn't passed through many other hands, would it have then gotten published? Well, the only precedent we have out here is the Pentagon Papers, where the Times did publish, and it came directly from Ellsberg. Um, I mentioned, I think, in the previous session we had, that Ellsberg's plan B, if the Times and the Post wouldn't publish this, was to give it to the Harvard Crimson. So I don't know quite what we would have done. And we, after debating it for a while, at some point people said, you know, we don't have to sit here and decide that issue now because it's not the facts that are right in front of us uh, here. Um, my own instinct is it probably would have been published anyway, uh, but it would have been a harder it would have been a harder call. But it raises another question that we also discussed, and I'd love to get your response to this, which was. Given that there is a WikiLeaks culture out there, that there are leakers who are looking for places to send material, is the New York Times effectively going to advertise for this kind of material? Is it going to have a site uh, or you know a, a link on its website that would say, if you've got some Drop classified documents, documents yeah. send them to us? And there, how, where does that stand? Um, you know, this discussion came up the last time when we met here a month ago, and there's been absolutely no activity on this front that I've seen since that time. Um, I, I might point out that the New York Times has been in some way in the leaks business since 1851. Okay. Um, you know, uh, it happened in stories that we broke about Tammany Hall uh, in uh, in the late 1800s, some in the Civil War. Alex remembers all of these personally. Uh, <laughs> wrote a few of the stories, um, uh, but um, uh, we. Um, I'm not sure having a, a site, a place to go drop it, means a huge amount. Other, you know, what made this different? The size of the leak. You couldn't have handled this leak if you didn't get it digitally. I mean, as it was, the Pentagon Papers fill the hotel room. This was so much bigger just in the amount of material that, you know, one thing that WikiLeaks may have changed is that people can leak now on a vaster scale. And a question we grappled with a month ago, and I've just been turning over in my head since, is when you get a leak of that size, does it change the nature of it? And I think the more I thought about that, the more I think, yeah, I think it does. Because, um, the U.S. government now knows that wherever something blows up, whether it's Libya today or Tunisia last month or Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, down the line, we have at our disposal this large um, uh, collection of documents that will certainly set some context about how the U.S. was dealing with these countries prior to the explosion. And that's got to be hanging over their heads. You know, I mean, there's just no question about it. In the past, documents would leak one or two at a time, but didn't give you the kind of broad scope sensibility about how the U.S. government was dealing with something. But there's also the issue of suborning treason. Uh, and I think that an advertisement, you know, inviting people to send classified documents would be t would be an invitation for the government to approach it that way. I, I think mm -hmm. it would be a terrible mistake myself. And I so haven't seen that. I haven't seen any news organization do that. No, Have I haven't. John? 
what was in WikiLeaks uh, about Libya? Um, we've seen the pictures of Tony Blair hugging him and Hillary Clinton with the sun, just from which we hadn't seen before. And how would you expect the Times um, editorially to respond to a rapidly instituted, uh, for it's too late, no-fly zone administered by Britain, U.S., and endorsed by the Arab League? I'm not sure they can afford to wait for the U.N. How would the paper, would you expect your friends on the editorial board to respond to? You know, I'm, I, I'm not sure how I would expect the editorial board to respond to it. Uh, I wrote a story uh, with my colleague Tom Shanker that's on the front page today about the debate within the administration on this subject. And I think it's a fascinating debate because it's a real test of President Obama uh, in that he is under pressure from many different sources here. On the left, he has many people worried about human rights who fear that what's about to happen in Libya is a repeat of Rwanda at its worst or Bosnia, the cases where the Clinton administration didn't move at all or moved too slowly. And you saw John Kerry in our story really lashing into the administration on that subject uh, this morning. On the right, you have people who see this as evidence that President Obama is weak or indecisive or too scared by the specter of Iraq. In other words, just as we had to go years before we got out from underneath Vietnam, that now we've got a president who, you know, is measuring every move versus how it would be perceived in a region that believed that Iraq was uh, either a mistake or something that made us responsible for everything that followed. Um, you've heard really interesting arguments on both sides of this. Uh, Richard Haas has a very interesting op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal today, which if you haven't read it, is worth going back to, that basically expands on Secretary Gates's argument about why it would be a mistake for the U.S. to get too involved. My guess is that this is going to be less decided by ideology and more decided by events. If Gaddafi uses his jets to bomb a large number of people, I think you will see an international consensus come together very quickly for a no-fly zone. The problem with the no-fly zone right now is that very little of the killing has been done from the air. It's been done with machine guns, it's been done with artillery, it's been done with tanks. It's nothing that the U.S. can really affect from the air unless we get into, you know, literally bombing Gaddafi's troop sites. And I don't see that happening in this administration. Melissa. Yeah, um, David, I wanted to just talk a little bit about your notion of how well the American people are being served, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with journalism sort of being at the place it is right now, and sort of in, in some sense make the alternative argument that there's always been, you know, a sliver of people who are truly interested in foreign news to the level of you're talking about with analysis and the rest. Uh, were I interested today in going and looking and <coughs> understanding more about what's happening in Libya? Compared to 10 years ago, I could go to the New York Times, but I could also go to Foreign Policy, mm -hmm. right online, mm -hmm. see it immediately. Mm -hmm. I could go to Global Voices online, and I could read what the bloggers are saying, you know, out of Libya. I could then go to uh, Reporters Without Borders. I could go to Human Rights Watch organizations, see what they're saying on the ground from the human rights perspective. In other words, if I'm truly one of those who wants to have that information, I'm someone who would have absorbed from the Washington Post, the LA Times, perhaps pick them up at the newsstand. I can do that today and arguably get a deeper sense of it if I want to. <laughs> I agree. But you've just described why the divide in the U.S. is widening and not narrowing. Yeah. For those who are truly interested, there are more sources than ever before. And that's great because it's also a check on our own reporting, right? And I don't think that uh, people who are sending out tweets from the ground necessarily, you know, can compete with people who are giving an overall sense of what's happening. But they certainly can check you on specific mm -hmm. facts or or make it clear that an attack is happening in some place where there are no reporters. Mm -hmm. So it increases the number of witnesses, and the amount of analysis that's on the web is great. What I worry about is that vast majority of Americans who get their news only from TV, 
who view the world as, you know, a big scary place where it's really confusing, and you only have a few minutes to sort of capture their attention in the course of the day, and they're not going to go to those sites. And what I worry about then is that they are getting either just headlines or they're getting less than they may have gotten 20 years ago. Um, yes. I was, do you think that the president would be handling things differently if it weren't Obama in the White House? And do you think that there is a foreign policy establishment that's sort of carrying through policies? Or, or if we had McCain in the White House or another Republican, how would we see, would events be different even if things are being dictated by events? Well, you know, you can break this question into two different parts that I'm not certain I know the answer to. The first part is, how much of what we see happening in the Arab world is happening in part because Obama is there? Well, you, if you're, you know, the, the neocon argument against that is he's walked away from the democracy agenda that the president had. The argument in favor of it is that many people on the street in the Arab world see somebody sitting in the White House who they think might be more inclined to side with them than George Bush did, given just the unique history of Barack Obama. Um, but I think in the question of how America responds, who the president is really matters. I mean, McCain's made very clear how he would respond. I think that you would probably see a full force, you know, American backing uh, of the rebels uh, at this point. I don't know whether that would mean ground troops. I doubt it would. But certainly more from the air. Um, my guess is that when the history of the Libyan thing is written, and when we know a little more about <coughs> what happened, we're going to discover that there were probably more CIA forces mm -hmm. and probably more special forces on the ground in Libya than we're now aware of. Mm -hmm. But that's guesswork at this point, as opposed to any repertorial knowledge. Um, but um, I suspect I can I can think of a number of different people who would have reacted differently to this, probably including Kerry. I mean, I think it's interesting that the critique of Obama has not simply been from the right here. It's also been from, from the left. And the left's a little conflicted because on the one hand, if George Bush was sitting there and was getting involved in Libya, they would all be saying, here we go again. Instead, what you're hearing is we're not caring enough for a brutalized minority. Uh, so it's a human rights argument. Yes. Um, uh, David, when, when uh, obviously when the first WikiLeaks story came out, um, there was all this controversy about the, the justification of publishing it and so on. And yet, several weeks later, with the um, uh, spreading unrest to Libya, the Times' piece on the corruption among Gaddafi's family. I believe mm -hmm. your name was on that? No, Scott Shane. No. Okay, mm -hmm. yes. But that piece, uh, which uh, came from the WikiLeaks cables and, and mm -hmm. some further reporting, everybody thought was a great story. Funny uh, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what what's changed? Is it, the, is, it, is it that we've built up a, now a tolerance for <laughs> the whole concept of this kind of uh, information, or is it the context? Uh, where we know this is the, these are bad guys and, and it's just another way of uh, sort of getting to the bottom of the story. I think both. I think that in part, you know, you can only sustain an argument about WikiLeaks for a month or two before Charlie Sheen begins to push things <laughs> out of the hole, <laughs> okay? Uh, but I think the second part uh, of it is that now that the context has changed, people are sort of interested in any evidence they have about whether or not Gaddafi really did undergo this great personality transformation that many in the West wanted to believe he went through when he gave up his nuclear weapons in mm -hmm. 2003 and when he settled the Lockerbie case a few years later. Mm -hmm. And what we've now discovered is that it's the same old Muammar Gaddafi we have gotten to know and love for so many years, right? <laughs> and uh, the WikiLeaks cables sort of give you the counter-narrative, which mm -hmm. is that while these governments were publicly saying we think he may have changed, you know, turned over a new leaf. We've discovered that he and his family were doing many of the same things. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, um, thank you. <coughs> I was wondering what you think about the 
like it's almost like a witch hunt against certain journalists who do recover these things, like James Risen having his uh, phone records seized, Glenn Greenwald um, with the with the revelation about how they wanted that there was some kind of firm that the federal government, the Department of Commerce, told ATT or not ATT, America, the bank. Bank, Bank America to mm -hmm. hire this firm that was going to destroy him and his career by, um, uh, you know, what do you think of, of the fact that like, your newspaper sat on Jane Risen's story for like a year um, until after the election um, about the NSA spying and so on? What, do you, what are your thoughts on those? Um, let me unpack that into a couple of different pieces. First. The Obama administration has certainly gone after leakers with a ferocity that has surprised many of us. And I think they probably had more cases filed in the past two years than probably for many, many years uh, prior to that. And why that is exactly is still something of a mystery uh, to me. Um, and I think it shows you that uh, people who get into the national security business um, Frequently, the concept of secrecy tends to overwhelm the sort of broader judgment about where the society is going. Um, we could have a completely separate conversation about um, the Ryzen Licklau uh, initial story and whether or not it was ready for publication prior to the election or not. There's a lot of debate within the New York Times on that uh, very subject. Um, we did publish prior to the election a story we were breaking at the exact same time uh, about how American uh, forces who were going up through Iraq um, had found a large weapons depot and went right by it after discovering it and turned around um, uh, later on to finally get back to it a few months later and it had all been looted and the stuff spent years being shot back at Americans. And had we held that story uh, to after the election, we would have been under the same criticism that we ultimately were for for the rise in uh, Litblast story. So um, a lot of these, I think, have more to do with when the story's ready, although uh, there's a lot of debate, as I said before, about uh, whether or not uh, Risen's was. Um, I find pretty disturbing the the pace at which the Obama administration is not only prosecuting these cases, but closing down on a lot of, of national security reporting. Uh, I've been doing a lot of the reporting on uh, with two of my colleagues on Stuxnet, which is the, uh, the computer worm that's been used against the Iranian uh, nuclear program. It is, to my mind, one of the most fascinating stories out there because it involves an entirely new form of warfare, but one that's very hard to see and very hard to cover, uh, and is probably the most significant covert operation the United States has been involved in in many years, if not many decades. And uh, it has been something on which the government of the United States and the Israeli government and others have thrown about as many blockades in our way to reporting as they could come up with. But, uh, you know, if this was, is easy, a legitimate if this was secret? easy, everybody would do it. Is the, but is that a legitimate secret that should be kept a secret? Well, the fact is that um, at the time that the Iranian uh, uh, centrifuges stopped operating, it was no secret to the Iranians that they had been attacked by something. Are so you suggesting this is a joint U.S.-Israeli operation? That is what we've written in the New York Times, that this was a joint U.S.-Israeli <laughs> operation. Yeah. And we ran a fairly lengthy story about this in uh, uh, January. And, you know, it grew out of some reporting that uh, I had done uh, back at the end of the Bush administration and wrote in the Times and also uh, was revealed when I published a book in early '09. That, there, that President Bush had authorized the beginning of a, of a very broad computer warfare attack on the U.S. Um, to your question, Alex, here's why I think it's a legitimate story. There is no country on Earth that is more vulnerable to cyber attack than the United States. And if we are starting up a new form of warfare, we have to start it up with the understanding that we are legitimizing it for others to use against the U.S. We may not 
approve of their motives, as you can imagine. Um, but we've never had a national debate on the question of whether or not this is a weapon you want to use. Just as we never had a national debate about whether or not you wanted to drop the atom bomb until after it was dropped. And, you know, there was considerable debate for the ensuing 50 years. Um, my guess is that over the next few years we are going to regard cyber weapons as sort of the new version of nuclear weapons. Different kind of damage, but just as broad. And so I think it's something that's worth extraordinary coverage. Mm. On that note, we are out of time. I want to thank you, David Sanger, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.